Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. It's our final episode for the calendar year of 2020, and this is a very science-heavy episode, even by our standards. After some good news and feats of strength, we revisit optimal protein recommendations and whether or not fish oil is a worthwhile supplement. We also take another look at a previously discussed study about implementing strength blocks to enhance hypertrophy and how much the typical lifter should worry about muscle glycogen depletion. Finally, Greg explores a couple fascinating studies that might give us some clues about the biological factors that limit how large a muscle fiber can get. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your one and only full-time podcast host, Eric Trexler. Today, I am going to be joined by a very special, very temporary guest co-host named Greg Knuckles. Of course, we do have a good news segment to start things off today, but before we get into the good news, I want to wish happy holidays and a happy new year to all listeners, whatever holidays you might be celebrating. We sincerely hope that you do enjoy them. So you want to get into some good news? Uh, Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and start? Uh, Yeah. So um, Big Ramey finally broke through and won the Mr. Olympia. I've been a big fan of him for a long time. Uh, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I just like big, freaky bodybuilders. Like that, in my opinion, especially now that there's like the classic bodybuilding division where you know the the aesthetic guys are. Uh, speaking of which, this isn't on the outline, but like, did you see any any pictures from that Trex? From the classic? Yeah, uh, I did. Dude, Bumstead looks insane. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, like that's where the aesthetics are now. I just want to see the freaks in the open division. Uh, and big Ramey has definitely been a freak among the freaks for a while, uh, and just couldn't dial in his conditioning for the stage. Some people say that there were also politics going on behind the scenes. I don't know about that. Uh, seems very plausible. I won't pretend I know enough about IFBB bodybuilding to confirm or refute that. Uh, but it, it, it was good to see him finally break through and win one. And boy, did he deserve it. Uh, he he was the biggest dude on stage by far and just brought insane conditioning this year. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that, in my mind, counts as good news. Yeah. For context, uh, what was your favorite version of Ronnie Coleman? <sighs> oh, man. I forget what year it was, maybe 2003. Uh, My favorite version of Ronnie was like when he stopped having Coleman-esque conditioning, but just got freakier than ever. The the one where his his night show posing routine, he came out with like the crown and cape. Yeah. That was my favorite version of Ronnie. Yeah, so I I kind of liked early career Ronnie better, but Mm -hmm. but, I mean, your your bodybuilding preferences are are quite clear. Uh, We've talked about this before. My favorite bodybuilder of all time is Marcus Rule. (laughs) Yeah. And that that should give an indication of what I look for in bodybuilders. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, No, but uh, Big Ramey, he looked awesome. And he is one of those bodybuilders for the longest time. I used to follow the IFBB uh, a lot closer than I currently do. But for the longest time, it was just like he was so big Mm -hmm. and you're just waiting for the day that he'd be able to pull it all together, show up in in really, really good shape, really good conditioning. And he did it, which is which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for my good news segment, uh, we're going to the animal kingdom. That's my sweet spot. So uh, (laughs) 
like all good news, it starts with bad news. There were some brush fires in Australia, some pretty severe ones, and it was feared that the world's smallest possums were actually extinct as a result of the uh, the really bad brush fire season uh, in Australia recently. Uh, you know, the, the fires wiped out over 80% of their habitat, but I know what you're thinking, Greg. Did anybody check Kangaroo Island? That is the first thing I was thinking, yeah. Well, turns out they didn't check Kangaroo Island until now, but they were over on Kangaroo Island and they found some of these little fellas. So, so they were quite concerned that these little possums were extinct, but they are good to go, uh, ready to fight back and, uh, and repopulate Kangaroo Island. And these... These little po- <laughs> these little possums are seven grams. <laughs> uh, they are very very cute. So if you want to see some cute possums, uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes and you can check them out. Now the comments were a bit mixed for for the article that I saw. Um, one person said this was possumly the best news I've heard all day, uh, which was I, I thought that was nice. Another commenter said it looks smug. So. I don't know. I guess some people just don't like the look of these <laughs> these little possums. Uh, arguably a smug type of possum. I don't know. But uh, good news to see that they are alive and well and ready to fight back. You always love to see happy and healthy possums. That's right. Okay. Dude, uh, the small versions of just like normal ass animals, always so cute. Always. I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before, Uh but dear listener, if you have never heard of uh, Pudu, P-U-D-U, uh, it is a, it's the smallest deer in the world, lives in South America, um, mostly in Chile and Argentina. Dude, it is the cutest thing. They are so tiny. Uh, they only get up to about 20 pounds. And uh, yeah, so if you need a pick me up in your day. Just uh, take two seconds and Google image search Poodoos. Awesome. All right. What do you think about some feats of strength? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so there are quite a few that are uh, worth talking about. So I'm not going to dwell on any one of them too terribly long. Um, but so I'll uh, I'll just get right into it. So Gabrielle Pena. Uh, who I had not heard of before, but I think he's a competitive strongman, uh, recently recorded the heaviest trap bar deadlift ever. Um, so it was 1160 pounds or 526 kilos. Uh, I will say just looking at the video, the he's pulling from the high handles and the high handles are quite high. Uh, so just in terms of like purely the most impressive deadlifts ever, I don't think that this tops Thor's deadlift with a barbell of uh, 501 kilos, but I mean, it's 1,100 plus pounds for a very deadlifty movement, uh, and no one has ever done that before. So props to him. Very, very impressive stuff. Uh, Jackson Powell, who we've talked about on the podcast before, uh, Teenage Strength Phenom, 18 years old, squatted 410 kilos or uh, about 904 pounds in competition and also totaled uh, 2,000 plus in sleeves. Um, fucking wild. Uh, last time we talked about him, I, I feel like the last time we talked about him, it was the first time we squatted 800 and that wasn't that long ago. Uh, so anyway, very strong kid. Uh, moving on. 
possibly, arguably, the crown jewel of untested uh, raw powerlifting is the raw with wraps super heavyweight record. Uh, that is, you know, obviously the most that anyone is lifting uh, without, you know, a, a bench shirt or squat suit. Uh, and that record was recently broken by Peter Petrus. He totaled 1,160 kilos or 2,557 pounds. Uh, knocked down that world record. I will say there was some controversy about this one. Uh, when I first saw the videos, all of the lifts looked solid. Uh, a side video or like a kind of diagonal angle of the squat started going around. Uh, and it wasn't the best angle to judge depth, but it it did look kind of iffy from that angle, but, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't just absolutely abhorrent. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, he got whites and that is all that matters. So congrats to him. Um, Dmitry Nasinov, who we've also talked about on the podcast before is inching closer and closer to being the first competitor in the 181 pound or 82 and a half kilo weight class to deadlift 900 in competition. Uh, he deadlifted, uh, I didn't do the pound conversion. I think it's 891, 405 kilos, um, recently at the WRPF nationals or worlds or whatever, uh, big meet in Russia. Um, and honestly, so his previous record was 400 kilos and, the lockout looked kind of soft, somewhat iffy. I thought his lockout looked quite a bit more convincing this time around. Uh, and yeah, he's, I mean, he lifts in kilos. He's Russian. I'm sure he doesn't care about being the first 900-pound deadlifter. But boy, do I care. Uh, that's so impressive. Very, very cool. Um, so I remember when I first got into lifting, uh, like, Raw was just making its resurgence. Uh, and the raw record on the books that seemed just the most completely untouchable was Ed Cohn's 903 deadlift at 220. Um, like it, it just seemed like a number that was completely untouchable. Uh, and now someone's getting pretty close to that two weight classes lower, which like Jesus Christ, I, I did not like, I, I would I wouldn't have been shocked say maybe 5 years ago if someone at some point pulled 900 at 198. I never expected to see numbers like this at 181. Uh so very very impressive, good for him. Uh and I'm really hoping he breaks that barrier soon. Uh Andre Saponzakov, uh 90 kilo, 198 pound bench specialist. Uh, I believe chipped his old world record, so he benched 277 kilos. Uh, should have done the pound conversion. That's somewhere in the neighborhood of 610, I believe. Um, I'm pretty sure he had the old world record at 276, so he he chipped it. Uh, congrats to him. Uh, Zach Myers uh, broke the all-time world record at 275 for the total. Uh, that was previously held by Larry Wheels. Broke the record by about 48 pounds. Uh, very, very impressive and dominant performance top to bottom. Congrats to him. Uh, and finally, another impressive young gun, uh, Jesus Oliveras. He is a junior USAPL lifter. Um, 
he totaled uh, 1,055 and a half kilos or 23.27 pounds. Uh, that is an unofficial junior, junior world record in the USAPL um, because for world records, like you have to be competing at international meets or like meets with enough international qualified judges. Um, so it doesn't technically break that record, but in my heart it does. Uh, <laughs> like, dude, that's, that's such a crazy total for, uh, for someone who's 23. And, and as far as like weight classes go, generally the, uh, the heavyweights take a little bit longer to mature just because like they're bigger and they have an enormous amount of muscle and it takes a long time to build that much muscle. Generally, like some of the lighter weight classes, like people may hit their competitive prime like a little bit earlier. Uh, so the fact that there's a junior already totaling over 2,300, uh, that's wild. And I am expecting to see enormous things from him moving forward. I've got one to add to the list. Yeah, go for it. Uh, Joe Stockinger. Is that how he says his oh, last yeah, name? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Stockinger, Stockinger. I don't know. Uh, so he pulled 405 for a double, mm -hmm. which is a lot of weight. He happens to weigh about 147, 147 pounds. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a really good deadlift for that weight without any qualifiers. Sure. Well, I, I have a qualifier, though. What is that? Uh, the gentleman's 90 years old. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of years. Yeah. That's a, a year PR and, for most people, a deadlift PR. You know, I should uh, I should crunch some numbers I think you could probably make the case that he is the greatest outlier athlete in the world in any sport. Uh, like, so, uh, man, I, I remember that a couple years ago, there was there was a guy who was like 100 plus who just absolutely dusted the 100 plus 100 meter world record or something like that. So I, it, it's probably some older person who is just like the biggest athletic outlier. But I, I remember going into, I think it was the 2016 Olympics. Um, 538 did a analysis um, uh, about Katie Ledecky and just how far ahead of the rest of all other female swimmers in the world. She was like on a Z scored basis, like basically take the other top competitors in the world see what their typical performance is and like their, the, the variance of their performance Z scored and then see how far ahead like various athletes are. Uh, and, and their analysis was basically that like among Olympic athletes, uh, Katie Ledecky was, was probably the biggest outlier. Uh, and I was like, huh, I wonder, I wonder who the biggest freak is in powerlifting that we can find. Uh, and at the time it was Jennifer Thompson's bench press but I mean, I, I wasn't thinking of age divisions as well. And like a 400 plus deadlift, regardless of weight class at 90 years old, I feel like that has to be a bigger outlier. Yeah. Uh, just because like the typical 90 year old is in fact dead. Um, and the ones that are alive generally don't pull 400. <laughs> I, I think he actually also had 405 for a triple. I don't, I don't remember if it when he, if it was when he was 89 or if he was 90 at that time as well. Mm -hmm. But like this guy on most days, it seems can roll out of bed and pull 405 for a couple or a few. 
Yeah, he, w- which uh, is crazy. He, he looks like he can probably still pull like 430, 440. Yeah. If memory serves, he pulled 450 in a meet maybe like three years ago. Like I, I've seen his name before. Um, and I think like basically he is, he's not still getting stronger, which is would be completely unreasonable to expect. But I think like basically he is losing strength rolling into his 10th decade of life at the typical rate that like, 40 or 50 year olds are yeah uh that ain't normal man no not at all so really impressive congrats to him that's that's insane all right so moving on we've got a, a new segment i'm calling it clarifications rigid defensiveness and aggressive counterattacks and basically this is when uh we say a thing someone responds to it and then we get to choose whether we want to, to offer a humble clarification, a rigid defensive uh, response, or an aggressive counterattack. And we won't we won't say which is which. We're just going to go for it. <laughs> so uh, last episode, I talked about a study by Tagawa and colleagues. And the study was looking at dose-response relationships between protein intake uh, and the increase in lean body mass or muscle mass. And so it was a meta-analysis. They used some kind of meta-regression techniques. And the general idea, the whole purpose of the study was to look at a bunch of studies that have given various amounts of protein and and kind of observed over the course of the intervention how much lean body mass was gained. And the main takeaway that I talked about was the inflection point. Um, You know, the idea is that when you increase from a low protein intake to a moderate protein intake, we expect some pretty notable improvements, some some uh, real benefits when it comes to lean mass accretion or retention. But at a certain point, we, we do expect that we'll reach a protein intake that is essentially, for practical purposes, sufficient. And we start to see that beyond a certain point, there are diminishing returns and further increases in protein probably don't give you uh, as much bang for your buck. You don't see as, as notable of benefits once you go beyond a certain intake. And a lot of the papers in this area, especially the, the meta-analyses and meta-regressions, are interested in figuring out where is that inflection point? A- at what point do the really large benefits of additional protein start to flatten out? And so uh, there is a paper in 2018 by Morton and colleagues that said that inflection point was probably at about 1.6 grams per kilogram. Uh, This paper uh, by Tagawa and colleagues included a lot more studies. They included studies with both resistance training and without resistance training, uh, which really kind of opened it up to to several more studies and a larger sample size. Uh, So very large uh, sample of studies that they pooled together for this analysis. And so, like I said, the Morton study indicated that the inflection point was at about 1.6 grams per kilogram. In this study, they had a number of different figures with, with different covariates and stuff included, but it looked like it was probably somewhere between 1.3 to 1.5-ish. And so my takeaway that I shared last episode is basically, okay, it looks like that range that most people kind of advocate, that 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram per day for, for lifters, probably not not a bad range to shoot for if you want to make sure that you've got your protein bases covered and you want to make sure that you're not leaving a lot of gains on the table. Now, I did get a little bit of pushback for that segment, and there were two main issues, two uh, areas to focus on. So one was basically, why am I interpreting these figures very... Uh, 
imprecisely, right? So if it says the inflection point is exactly 1.3, why am I presenting it as a range and kind of loosely interpreting these models as if they're very imprecise? Uh, so why am I not taking them as extremely literal and extremely precise? And the second issue that came up is, you know, why am I saying that 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram per day is sufficient? Are, are there any times where higher amounts might be needed? So I'm going to get into both of those issues. I want to start with the first one, which is interpreting the figures in this meta-analysis. So there were a bunch of different figures showing, you know, as protein on the x-axis goes up, we see you know, better results in terms of lean body mass accretion. And then at a certain point along the x-axis, that that slope kind of flattens out. And some people, you know, kind of look at that and, and interpret the y values extremely precisely and assume that this line that we're seeing is is essentially a universally true representation of real numbers that have been observed. Um, and, and so I want to begin by kind of starting with an example. So imagine you're looking at a meta-analysis that says, does caffeine enhance performance? And, and that is it. That, that's as precise as we're getting. And it gives you an effect size of, you know, Cohen's D equals 0.2. The question is, how do we translate that into a prediction about how caffeine is going to impact our performance? Uh, of course, if we really cared about the, the answer, we would get pretty precise with our assessment. We would ask a few questions like, well, what caffeine dose am I going to take and in what form and how long before exercise? And am I naive to caffeine or am I habituated to caffeine? And what is the exact specific exercise task and how familiar am I with that exact exercise task? And, you know, the meta-analysis, that kind of fictitious uh, hypothetical meta-analysis that effect size of 0.2 is not remotely specific to our situation. It's, it's a combination of studies with several different characteristics that all kind of get pooled together and mashed together into one kind of generalized uh, estimate of what kind of effect caffeine has. So we are trying to apply it to a precise scenario, and we cannot assume that caffeine is going to have that exact effect size when we start to make precise contextualized predictions for a very specific scenario. And even if that fictitious meta-analysis has a really narrow confidence interval around that effect size, that might be the case if there are a ton of studies going into it. Um, but that confidence interval, even though it's narrow for this kind of imprecise estimate of the pooled effect size, just because that confidence interval is narrow, it does not mean that we can precisely generalize that effect size to all possible scenarios. The details really matter. And when we start trying to apply things from meta-analyses or meta-regressions, we have to remember that, you know, the precision of that estimate can only be precise as the, the actual inputs that go into the calculation, that go into the modeling process. So, Shifting focus back to the protein paper. Uh, Greg, if I asked you to describe your current training program, how would you describe it? Uh, three or four days per week, uh, about twice per week upper. Okay, twice stop. Per... If your answer is anything more than yes or no, then you're going way beyond the precision of the models in this meta regression. Oh, you got me. Exactly, I got gotcha. you. But the idea that these, these numbers are these 
ultra precise estimates that we can pull straight from the model and insert it into real life, you can only pretend to defend that choice if I ask you what your training program is and you say yes or no. Anything else beyond that is a level of precision that did not go into the formulation of these models. And it's really critical to consider that when you look at the results of a meta-analysis or a meta-regression. Now, in this particular paper, they did use some covariates to try to smooth out some potential sources of variation in the lean mass outcomes. And it's really critical to remember that using covariates is extremely different than experimentally controlling for something. It's usually better than nothing uh, to use covariates, but not always. It's really only better when there's a linear, mostly independent relationship between the covariate and the outcome within that data set. And that linear relationship pretty accurately reflects the true relationship out in the real world between those two variables. Now, in the different models uh, presented in this meta-regression, uh, one of the models uh, didn't include any covariates. Another one included age, sex, intervention, length, and resistance training. And the, the other set of models also added weight change as a covariate on top of those covariates. So it's critically important to remember when you look at that meta-regression line, the studies going into it have not been actually equated before going in. I mean, it, it's not like they said, we're only going to look at 12-week interventions. There are effect sizes going into this model from studies that are two weeks or four weeks or 12 weeks or six months. And they're leaning on the covariates, hoping that they're going to smooth out some of those sources of variation and hopefully get things kind of equated. But there's a huge uh, variety of study characteristics representing the studies that go into this model. And we can try to use covariates, but that's an imperfect uh, way to handle things. It, it's the best we can do, but it's imperfect. Uh, so I, I don't want it to seem like I'm criticizing the models. I'm simply pointing out some realities of what we have to deal with when it comes to interpretation. So a hypothetical scenario, let's say that in this body of literature, the studies with younger subjects just kind of tend to have more intense training programs that provide a more robust hypertrophy stimulus. It, it's not like they were intentionally made that way, but the, the studies with younger subjects tend to have hypothetically more intense training programs. So what happens when we adjust for age in this model? Well, the model can't distinguish which part of that age effect is truly due to the biological effects of age. It can't separate that from the fact that age is kind of interrelated with training uh, stimulus in that particular scenario. So the, the age covariate is kind of contaminated to an extent by the confounding effect of having training programs that systematically differ in terms of their program characteristics. And it could potentially adjust your data in an unintended manner. And there's not a damn thing we can do about that. And so one of the things, you know, I don't want it to seem like I'm against using covariates because it's a good statistical practice, but I'm against having 100% faith that covariates will always do exactly what we hope they will. So whenever I see a model that has, you know, four or five covariates that could be quite interrelated, I always kind of stop and think, are there any ways that this could have unintended consequences on the model? And how much imprecision does that add to our 
um, our applications of the model. So, you know, if we really could lean on covariates that way and just assume that they completely handle everything exactly the way we want them to, and they are very specific and precise and, and never alter the data or, or the trends in ways that are unexpected, we really wouldn't have to bother with all these experiments. I mean, if that were truly the reality of covariate adjustments, we could lean a lot more heavily on observational data. And as long as we threw in the right covariates, we could get some really, really solid effect estimates. And, and obviously, we know that experimental control is, is so key to creating you know, generalizable findings where we can make really good inferences about causation. So another thing I want to bring up in this discussion, when we talk about how, exactly how literally can we interpret the values in these figures... Um, again, I want to reiterate the researchers did a fantastic job, but this is just kind of the nature of, of meta regression. We can't treat this as a really, really precise line that is real in nature. It's, it's not real. It's not arbitrary. It exists somewhere in between. Th these are adjusted values that are adjusted on many different covariates, right? So, Instead of thinking it as thinking of it as an ultra precise line that represents the real world perfectly, I look at it that, as that is generalizable to all real world situations. Exactly. Yeah, I view it as more of a cloud. <laughs> you know, so like, could we theoretically bump that line to the right or the left? Probably. Is it possible that you know it, it's it's almost like uh, in devs. We, we don't have to like take the full multiverse theory and assume that like there's an infinite number of lines in an infinite number of universes, but like there's some there's some potential for adjustment there, right? Like we should probably view it as more of a general ballpark estimate of the relationship, more of a cloud than a single line that perfectly represents that relationship. Did they report? R squared values for their entire models. Ooh, I I, 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 I have to go back. I don't remember if they did. I kind of don't think they did though. I don't think so, but uh, I'd have to go back and check. And I, I don't think the listeners want to listen to me uh, <laughs> scrolling through the paper. But we we can go back and check that, and if we need to make an update, we can. Because I mean, like like that's a consideration. Even if they had pretty good model fit, and you know, let's say had R values of 0.7 r squareds around 0.5 which honestly i i would anticipate it would be lower than that Th that would that would still mean that like you were leaving around half or like a, a, a large minority of the uh like a, of the variance of your data unexplained by your model yeah yeah i i don't think they reported r squared and, and for this type of modeling it's it's actually not super common mm -hmm. um w with meta regression so no fault of theirs but but yeah i i don't think they reported an r squared or anything like that um but anyway so like if we assume that we're going to interpret these figures completely literally uh well all, all i was getting at with that is like if you know if for example their r squared values were like 0.94 or something like that then that would be to some degree, like evidence against what you're saying, it's like, well, oh, like their models fit the data really, really well. Yeah. Uh, like th these, these are probably outcomes you could interpret literally. But if it was anything below like 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, then 
then like yeah there's there's going to be variability around it like the the models themselves are what fit the data best but they don't even come close to perfectly fitting the data because the data can't be perfectly fit right yeah and and i mean one of the things that helps even if we don't have an r squared to lean on is just doing some just some testing like just look at the numbers interpret them literally and see how you feel <laughs> you know so like uh, see if the the output of the model fits the experimental data that you've seen like that, that's a really good way to do it and you know if we were to interpret these lines extremely literally we'd have to answer some difficult questions we'd have to answer why not lifting and consuming 1.4 grams per kilogram leads to two to three times more lean mass gains than lifting and consuming the same amount of protein that's a difficult question to answer uh, we would have to answer a question like, why does not lifting and having 2.5 grams per kilogram lead to less lean mass gains than not lifting and consuming 1.3 grams per kilogram? Again, I don't have a good answer to that, but, but if we're interpreting the model literally, we have to sign up for that. And then another one is the model uh, really seems to suggest no synergistic relationship between protein and re resistance training, but there are experimental outcomes that do seem to suggest synergy there, you know, and, and theoretically you can make a good case for a synergistic relationship. Or, or at minimum an additive effect. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think there are some challenging questions where you have to say, well, do the models line up with the actual experimental evidence we do have in lifters? And I would say in some cases, it, it's not really a perfect fit between model estimates and, and the actual experimental data. Um, and another thing to keep in mind is, you know, we have to think of when we're looking at the extremes of the x-axis, when we're looking at the studies that give 3, 3.2, 3.5 grams per kilogram of protein per day, the, the figures show the trend line, but not the individual data points or, you know, even the, you know, the adjusted data points that go into the model. Um, but I can't imagine there are that many studies out there giving 3.1 to 3.5 grams per kilogram, uh, if there's a lot of them out there, I haven't seen them. Have you? No. So like I'm aware of a few. And uh, so for me, I'm like, I'm a little bit cautious about interpreting on the fringes of these figures because I would imagine most of the actual data points that generated this line probably exist in the middle. So we get to that point where we might not be completely extrapolating, but most of the data that's kind of informing the the actual estimates on the fringes there it's probably not actually from a series of studies that actually gave 3.5 grams per kilogram per day of protein mm -hmm. so we're just kind of extending that trend line from the real meat of the data and carrying it out uh based on the trend line that's established right and so that's something you have to be careful about as well and you know when i see all of these studies indicating or, or these uh these figures indicating benefits when we get into that like three 3.5 gram per kilogram range i go back and look at the only studies i'm aware of that actually give that kind of protein and include resistance training and it's the studies by jose antonio uh, he's done at least a couple of them where they put resistance trained folks on pretty solid bodybuilding type programs and give them either you know 1.8 
to two grams per kilogram or a ton, you know, three grams or above per kilogram per day. Yeah, I think one was 3.3 and one was 4.4. Yeah, and, and when we look at the results of those actual experimental outcomes, we don't see any benefit when it comes to lean mass accretion. Uh, either practically insignificant and statistically non-significant or literally no benefit at all. So no, yeah, and, and I think um, I, I think one thing to consider is just like model specification itself. Like they, they set out and basically said like there will be an inflection point. Mm-hmm. We're going to figure out what that inflection point is and we're going to see what the slope is up to that inflection point and beyond that inflection point. And so like to your point of you know, the, they set their inflection points at around 1.3 or, or like that's what they found them to be. Uh, and then if you have if you have a lot of studies in, say, like the 1.3 to 2.2 range and only like three or four maybe uh, in like the three plus range, then like basically when you're when you're finding the slope of that regression line, uh, the. So if we assume that like, you know, like maybe more than 1.3 is good, but like, let's just say hypothetically, uh, it plateaus after, I don't know, 2.4, 2.5, just to put a random number on it. Then if they like specified in the model, like, hey, maybe there are two breakpoints, then then you could potentially see that you could see like steeper slope to 1.3, slightly sh- shallower slope to 2.5. And then flat from 2.5 out to 3.5 or whatever it is. But since they predetermined that there would just be one breakpoint, uh, if there are way more data kind of to the left, like between the breakpoint and like, you know, 2.5 or something, uh, like that is going to have way, way more impact on the slope of that regression line than the two or three data points out on the extreme. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, like, who knows what they would have found if they went with two breakpoints instead of one like that that's just a model specification decision that isn't necessarily right or wrong but like we don't have all of the data that went into their model so like we can't test that counterfactual well we could but we'd have to go in and do the entire process of finding all the studies they included <laughs> and extracting the data and yeah. extracting the covariates and coding those and then doing the modeling yeah um and i'm really busy this week greg um but if you've got some time, that'd be cool. I mean, I occasionally do <laughs> volunteer to do stuff like that. Like, you you can back me up here. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, like, that's when we're dealing with metas that maybe have, like, between 8 and 20 studies. Yeah. There were, like, th- there were close to 100 in this one, right? There were, like, 60 or 80? There was a lot of studies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not doing that. I th- yeah, I think uh, <laughs> 105 were included yeah, in yeah. the uh, meta-analysis. So, But yeah, so I-, I should also put a caveat. I mentioned that there was like no no material benefits in, in those studies by Jose Antonio. That's specifically referring to lean mass or fat-free mass. Um, th- there were some modest benefits in terms of fat loss, but that's ultimately just not the research question that we're talking about. You know, So the take-home point here, Um, I I know it it seems like last week I presented this as, hey, here's this cool, good paper that I like. And then I just spent like 20 minutes saying like, well, here's why none of these lines mean anything at all. Um, You know, I just want to reiterate, the researchers did a really nice job. Uh, They did what they set out to do. I think it's a very informative paper. My only um, caveat is that I would caution against interpreting 
you know, the exact uh, X and Y values in these different models as being, you know, completely generalizable to all scenarios. And we, we have to remember the imprecise nature of how these types of models are generated, even when they're generated very effectively. So, so this is not a criticism of the work or the researchers. This is a, a reality of the type of work being done. It's a lot like with epidemiology when we have to say like, well, this is all survey stuff and, you know, it's observational and you can't really prove causation and you start rattling off all those caveats. It doesn't mean that the researchers did a bad job or that the work's not valuable and, and useful. It just means like, hey, we need to uh, really think hard before we interpret this and assume causality or assume an impractical level of precision uh, from the output of the model. So when I look at these types of papers, I look at the Morton paper, I look at this paper, I look at the actual experimental data that I'm aware of where we have the ability to control the duration of the intervention and the two different protein intakes and everybody's in the same age range and they're all doing the same resistance training program. When we triangulate all that data, it looks like that range of 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram is probably pretty sufficient. And when we start increasing that up to three grams per kilogram and beyond, I haven't seen the experimental data that would indicate that that's going to provide a really large benefit beyond what you're getting closer to two grams per kilogram. Um, now that is under the assumption that you are either at energy balance or in an energy surplus or you've got a decent amount of body fat. If any of those scenarios apply to you, then that 1.6 to 2.2 range, I think is pretty suitable. And I always err toward the high end of that range because you, you run a little uh, cost benefit analysis. I think you're better off going a little high than a little low. So, so that's kind of my take on it. However, moving on to point number two, um, there are some situations where higher amounts might be warranted or, or at least worth considering. So going above 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram, but this is really only going to apply to people who are already quite lean and in a caloric deficit and pushing to get like shredded. So if you're going from lean to absolutely shredded uh, and you're in a calorie deficit, it might make sense to go a little bit higher than that previously mentioned range. Another scenario where you might consider it is if you're in an enormous caloric deficit, but I normally tell people, hey, you probably don't want to be in an enormous caloric deficit. You'd probably rather be in a more moderate deficit uh, for a variety of different reasons. So the reason uh, that I presented this range in, last in the last episode without any major caveats is if we looked at everyone listening to this episode right now and said, who is like pretty shredded and pushing hard in a deficit to get extra shredded, it's literally only the people that are prepping for physique competitions at this moment and, uh, or, or like a fitness modeling photo shoot. It's probably not a huge percentage of our, of our listeners right now. What, what would you estimate as a percentage there? Uh, 1%. I was going to say below five. Yeah. So, so yeah, but for those individuals, uh, there's a really great systematic review by our dear friend, the good Dr. Eric Helms. I'm going to put the link to it in the show notes. And, you know, Helms is a bodybuilder. Is he a friend now? I would say he's a, a friend of the show, not a friend of ours. He's up been to, on the show. Up to this point, he has been an enemy of the show. 
Okay, then an enemy of the show. That works. Okay, cool. Uh, our dear enemy, the good Dr. Eric Helms. I haven't signed a treaty with him. Okay, fair enough. So he did a systematic review where he he really dug into this and he's a bodybuilder, right? So he was curious about like, well, what about the people who are lean on their way to shredded and in a deficit? And, you know, he looked at a number of studies and what he concluded was that for for resistance trained athletes that are energy restricted and pushing from lean to shredded, maybe you do want to get up and around 2.3 to 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat free mass. Per day, so that's not grams per kilogram of total body mass. That's grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. And again, the numerical range was two point three to three point one. And just to give an idea, like a real-world scenario, so let's say I weigh one ninety and I'm sixteen percent body fat, and I want to go toward the high end of the range at the end of my bulk. So I'm going to eat two point two grams per kilogram of protein at the end of my bulk before I start cutting. So I'm eating 190 grams of protein per day. Let's say that during my cut, trying to get shredded, I cut from 190 to 160. So I lose 30 pounds and my body fat goes from 16% to 5%. And I'm like shredded, ready to go. If I leave my protein at 190, then my grams per kilogram of fat-free mass, like I said, Helms's range was 2.3 to 3.1. It ends up being 2.75. So that is not necessarily a large increase in protein intake. What you find is if you're leaning toward the high end of that range for people that are at neutral or positive energy balance, and then you start cutting down to get lean and then progress onto shredded, you find, even if you don't do a lot of manipulation with protein intake, you kind of end up in that range. So like, even if you want to say, well, what about the people that are lean and getting shredded? It's like, well, if they followed that initial advice of 1.6 to 2.2 and err on the higher side, and then they just left it and did a cut by removing fat and carbohydrate, by the time they're shredded, they're probably very comfortably in that range. So like, yeah, if you're in that range, if, if you're going and pushing to get really, really shredded, I do not advise that you should be removing protein from your diet as you get leaner in order to kind of match your, uh, you know, your grams per kilogram numbers. You, you probably want to leave protein stable or if anything, increase it as you go. But I just wanted to give like a, a concrete example of when you see those numbers, oh, wow, 2.3 to 3.1, that seems like a totally different uh, protein intervention. It's really not that different. By the time you're getting shredded, even if you don't even touch your protein, you kind of ease into that range as you get leaner. So for those individuals, yes, the gram per kilogram number should be different. It should probably exceed 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. But that doesn't mean that the second you begin a cut, you're like doubling your protein intake. Makes sense to me. All right. Um, I got another one. And normally I would say, you go, I need to take a break, but I'm just going to keep on pushing. Go off, King. <laughs> so here's another one. Um, fish oil. People are upset, Greg. Are, are you up to date on fish oil? I'm really not. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so, dude, so I got into fitness in 2000. Uh, well, I started like doing blog posts and stuff, maybe like 2012, mm -hmm. like just making long waste of time Facebook comments than calling them like a blog post. But anyway, back in those days, if you just said like, hey, fish oil is pretty good, it was just nothing but, you know, pats on the back. Hey, you did it. Good one. 
dude, so what happened is people got really intrigued by fish oil and were very receptive to it. And then a few big studies hit that said like, hey, fish oil doesn't prevent heart attacks. And dude, that pendulum swung hard. Dude, there was even a bigger pendulum swing kind of on the fringes of uh, of like fitness conversations before that. Do you know of Ray Pete? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the he and his followers are are on the uh, guess what? Omega threes will actually kill you train because did you know oxidation exists? Yeah. Yeah. So so let me cut to the uh, cut to the point here. So I, on my Instagram. I make uh, I do re- recommended reads on Mondays where I just say, hey, here's a cool paper that'll make you smarter. You should read this one. And I do other like informative posts on Thursdays. So if you want to check those out, my handle's at Trexler Fitness. It is some of the hottest content on Instagram, they're saying. A lot of people are saying, actually. And uh, I had a Thursday post about fish oil, just kind of talking to the camera, giving a little summary. And people were like, man, fish oil is a scam and it's trash and it's useless. And somebody actually did bring up Ray Pete and they're like, what do you think about this? You should debate him. I was was like, I don't really want to do that. So uh, basically, it seems like a lot of people are rightfully a little bit agitated about fish oil. And I say rightfully because like some people were overselling it way too hard. Mm -hmm. And so it's only natural if you push fish oil and say like, dude, forget modern medicine, we've got fish oil now, like, then yeah, when it starts to actually get some evidence accumulating, and it falls short of some of the miraculous claims, people are going to be pretty, uh, pretty annoyed by that. Would you say that some of those claims flamed out? I I feel like you're making a pun or a joke, and I'm completely missing it. (sighs) That was the I I assume still is the uh, the biotest omega three brand. Uh, and, and they were pushing a lot of, uh, very strong claims about it. It was called flamed out flame out. Why would you call a fish oil that? Uh, cause it reduces inflammation. Oh, it puts okay. the flames out. Okay. That fair enough. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> man, if, if you had a, if we had a smarter host, who is more uh, in the know about the supplement brand names. Than I'll, I'll, I'll exclusively stick with Anaconda jokes from here. Okay, perfect. Yes. So um, anyway, all these claims get made. A uh, few trials come out that say like, hey, it's probably not as cool as we hyped it up to be. But there's always that kind of knee-jerk pendulum swing. And so a lot of people are like, dude, there is no evidence to suggest that fish oil does anything useful. And it certainly doesn't impact cardiovascular risk in any way. And it's like, well, wait a minute, that's a little bit hyperbolic. Like that, that's a little bit too extreme. So like there are data showing inverse relationships between fish intake, fish intake, not oil, and heart disease risk. There are some data showing inverse relationships between blood levels of uh, fish oil fatty acids and risk of sudden cardiac death. And then, you know, you look in 2019, last year, there was a, a meta-analysis by Hugh and colleagues uh, it's called Marine Omega-3 Supplementation and Cardiovascular Disease, an updated meta-analysis of 13 randomized controlled trials involving 127,000 participants. Uh, I rounded there if you're Googling the title. Uh, so what they found in this meta-analysis, 13 RCTs, big ones. I mean, if you got 13 studies in 130,000 people, those are big studies. Um, what they found was that Marine-derived omega-3 supplementation was associated with lower risk ratios 
uh, of a variety of cardiovascular outcomes. So they looked at risk of myocardial infarction, uh, car- uh, death from uh, coronary heart disease. They looked at uh, the, uh, the occurrence of coronary heart disease. They looked at cardiovascular death um, and total cardiovascular disease. And, and so for these different outcomes, they did find statistically significant uh, reductions in risk. However, it didn't have a, a risk reduction for stroke. And if you look at these risk ratios, they're not that impressive. It's, you know, risk ratios of 0. 0.2, 0. 0.95, 0. 0.97. And so like, that's a thing that is lower than one and the confidence intervals do not cross one. So they are statistically significant, but these are just to be like explicit for listeners. That means that they're finding that for all of these various outcomes, the the fish oil reduces risk by between three and 8%. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a modest effect, but it's not like, Hey, just take this fish oil, do all the unhealthy activities you wish you're covered. Like you got this. Uh, but, you know, with all things being considered equal, maybe there is a slight reduction of risk for these outcomes. Now, those results are when they removed one of the trials so that they excluded the reduce it trial. That's a big acronym because the reduce it trial introduced a lot of heterogeneity because the results were very, very, very positive. Um, so so this is kind of the like, let's throw out the really positive study and see the rest of the results. And those are the numbers I just gave you. And then when they did include the reduce it trial, they even found a significant dose response relationship. Um, but there, uh, and there was not significant heterogeneity in that dose response analysis. So the idea was, uh, you know, the higher the dose of the marine omega-3 supplementation, the fish oil supplementation, uh, you know, the, the more impressive the risk reduction. But this, this body of research, you know, I'm not saying that I'm 100% confident that fish oil has a notable protective effect. Uh, there are other meta-analyses out there showing null findings. And really what it comes down to is which populations do you wish to include in the analysis? Uh, you know, which study characteristics do you deem adequate to include in your meta? Um, so there are meta-analyses that find null results where there's no significant benefit. And there are meta-analyses like these where they find benefits that are statistically significant, but very, very modest, you know, 3%, 5%, 8% risk reduction. Uh, So this is a nuanced question. People who literally only study fish oil and its effects on cardiovascular health are currently arguing about this stuff like crazy. So if you think I have a nuanced answer that is more impressive than what all the experts in this field have, you're going to be sorely disappointed because I don't. But the fact, the the idea, the contention that there is no evidence whatsoever uh, related to this relationship, that's, it's simply hyperbolic. So I think we're going to learn more about it uh, in the future because these trials keep going. I think what, if we find an effect, it's going to be modest. It's not going to be a pronounced reduction of, of cardiovascular events. Uh, it's going to be, you know, a small reduction that may or may not be statistically significant. You still are going to have to keep an eye on the other more impactful aspects of cardiovascular health, exercise, maintain a healthy body weight, don't smoke, things like that. But there could be an independent effect there. If there is, some of the newer trials coming out are, are suggesting that EPA alone seems to be more beneficial than DHA or even a combination of EPA and DHA. 
And beyond that, it looks like even the specific type of EPA might matter. There's different formulations of EPA that have been used, and it looks like like some might be more effective than others. So I, I'm not sure I buy that. Fair enough. My, my libertarian friends have been telling me that the EPA is very ineffective. Is that? Are you being serious? God damn, Trex, you're you're. Oh God, dude, I'm I'm trying to do science here. I'm not trying to make uh acronym jokes about government organizations and most of our audience not most a large portion is international they don't know what epa is dude we're like we're like 45 minutes into this podcast and it's been like exclusively about metas and like details of statistical (laughs) modeling i'm trying to just pick my spots and pop in with with a very stupid joke from time to time just to keep people engaged about the environmental protection agency yes who libertarians would want to probably defund that's the, the all of the ones of the i talked to yeah okay well there you go all right it's it's comedy it's statistics dude you know how it goes when you're like really really getting into the details my br- my brain is not in a place to be re- receiving jokes no i i, I understand and, and i'll admit it, it wasn't a good joke <laughs> uh like I, i'm i'm just trying to just keep things light and fun. Dude, what what could be lighter or more fun than meta regression? Just keep going. Okay. It's fine. Okay. Um, now, here's where it gets my main point. So I made this post about fish oil. I think most of the people commenting didn't listen to the whole thing. Because I like didn't... Re- I, I don't recall talking about cardiovascular disease like at all. I might have mentioned it a little, but I don't recall for sure. But I mean, when I when I look at fish oil, like... We're in the feel good, perform well business here at Stronger by Science. Like we're, we're, we haven't gone full blown longevity mode yet. Like we don't do a lot of how to live forever content. So like I was kind of just talking about the other stuff. So there have been a couple reviews in the past year that have looked at potential benefits of fish oil for lifters and athletes. And, you know, we know that EPA and DHA, you know, which are the primary omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil, they're influential components in, in cell membranes when we look at a variety of cell types, you know, looking at blood cells, immune cells, cardiac tissue, skeletal muscle, eye tissue, brain cells, other tissues of the nervous system. I mean, EPA and DHA are certainly important. And, you know, studies looking at uh, adjusting EPA and DHA intake via supplementation generally generally report either neutral or modestly positive effects on Things like muscle recovery, cognition, nitric oxide metabolism, mental health, inflammation, immune function, muscle protein balance, neuromuscular function. I mean, the list goes on and on. And it's it's findings that, again, are neutral to modestly positive. And when you look at the major concerns that people have related to omega, or omega-3 and, and fish oil supplementation, the issues, people talk a lot about uh, potential bleeding problems uh, because... Um, Fish oil supplementation theoretically could increase bleeding time by reducing uh, the speed at which uh, clotting occurs in the blood. And uh, there's also issue or concerns about rampant lipid peroxidation, uh, that, that these fatty acids can be easily oxidized and that there are going to be negative outcomes related to that. Uh, looking at the actual literature related to those bleeding concerns, it, it looks like up to about five-ish grams per day of fish oil uh, doesn't seem to be a particularly notable increase in adverse events related to bleeding. 
Um, and I don't recommend even going up to that five gram per day uh, intake anyway. And as long as you've got a high quality product with an, an antioxidant included, a lot of products put vitamin E into the blend itself, then you're, you're probably not worrying too much about that lipid peroxidation issue. It seems to be pretty well taken care of. And so like the whole point of my post was like, I usually take a gram or two a day of combined EPA and DHA because when I look at it, um, I don't see much to lose there. I, I see some potential for modest benefit in a variety of different domains, and I don't see any really notable uh, adverse events that seem to be common when you're talking about uh, doses within that range. And so the way I look at it is like on a given day, I'm going to eat 70, 80 grams of fat. Is it that bad if like two to four grams of that comes from fish oil? I, I, I see some potential for upside and I really don't see a lot of downside. Now, if you're not convinced by the data, um, I can't fault you for that. Like it, like I said, it's neutral to modestly positive. So if you look at that same literature and say, eh, it's a little bit too mixed for me and the benefits don't seem pronounced enough, uh, they don't seem large enough in magnitude, dude, I'm, I, I'm fine with that. Like I, I, I can get on board with that. But for me, the pretty simple cost benefit analysis would indicate, eh, might be something to be had here. Seems like it's probably not a terrible idea. And I never eat fish. So a couple caps a day and I'm good to go. Makes sense to me. You don't have any strong opinions about fish oil? I really don't. Any additional quips you want to throw in there? I like salmon. It's <laughs> nice. It is nice. Um, all right. So you also have uh, something for this segment, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I do. So uh, last podcast episode, we uh, discussed a recent study by Carvalho and colleagues uh, about whether preceding a hypertrophy block with a strength phase uh, improved strength and hypertrophy outcomes. Um, and I, I would say it's uh, it's pretty fair to say that I, I was fairly critical of the study. Um, Indeed. To be clear, I was never implying that uh, the data themselves were illegitimate, just that there were some, some things about the statistical reporting that were kind of weird. Uh, and the the results seem to conflict with some of the evidence we had up to this point. Um, but one thing that I did say I recently found out was not a uh, appropriate criticism of the study. So one of the things I pointed out was that based on what is reported in the text and the tables of the study, um, some of the... Uh, some of the changes seemed to be remarkably homogeneous. So one of the ones that I focused on was within the group that did the strength phase followed by the hypertrophy phase. During the strength phase, during the first three weeks of the program, uh, vastus lateralis thickness increased from 22.6 to 22.8 millimeters. That is an increase of one-fifth of one millimeter. Uh, and in the table, there was a little asterisk next to the 22.8 denoting that that was a statistically significant increase from baseline. Uh, and so I said, you know, look, uh, that is a one-fifth of a millimeter increase. That is statistically significant. That implies absolutely remarkable homogeneity, way more than we tend to see in the literature. Uh, so I said that, and if that was correct, I would very much stand by that, that uh, commentary. Uh, but the senior author of the paper, uh, Barroso, he reached out to me on Twitter uh, and let me know 
basically that that was uh, an error in the paper. Um, so there was a main effect for time, and that's what they were trying to imply with their asterisks. So the the literal interpretation of the caption of that figure was incorrect, uh, but the the actual like just you know time zero to time one increase, uh, the the one fifth of a millimeter increase, that wasn't actually a statistically significant change. Um, so my interpretation of the figure was right, uh, like just based on what was actually presented in the figure, uh, but there was an error in the figure. So um, another thing worth noting uh, is one of the things I pointed out is there was an issue of p-values and confidence intervals not matching up. Uh, he said that that was just a simple error and they're going to get that corrected um, before the paper goes to final publication. Uh, it's currently pre-pubbed ahead of print. And I got to say, um, again, so uh, some people seem to have come away with the idea that I was implying that uh, the data lacked integrity. I, I wasn't trying to make that implication, just that some things about them just seemed weird. Uh, and I got to say, I, I do feel better about the study overall now that Bar that uh, Barroso uh, reached out to me about it. Um, you know, a, a simple mislabeling of a table <laughs> gives me much less pause than the implication of absolutely extreme homogeneity. Uh, so anyway, that is information I acquired after the last episode went out uh, that I wanted to share with you guys. And uh, so, yeah. All right. That's good stuff. All right. Moving on. Uh, we've got uh, we're lumping the selling out segment into the research review segment. And I I'm going to do a very brief, <laughs> a very brief highlight of a study here because I've been talking for a long time. And I know you've got a couple studies that you want to review. Um, so anyway, uh, as everyone knows, if you're a listener of the show, if you got supplement needs, you go down to BulkSupplements.com. You use the checkout code SBSPOD in all caps. You save incredible amounts of money, 5% off your order, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, now, another sponsor that we picked up, we've been in some pretty tense discussions with the suits over at Mass, which is a multinational conglomerate that publishes a research review every month and the stipulations of that sponsorship are pretty uh extreme you know th there's a lot of requirements so i have to in order to maintain that relationship give a, a little blurb about a recent article i did on glycogen that was published in i guess that was the december 1st issue of mass right mm -hmm. yeah so this is something, the reason I want to talk about it on the show, uh, of course, is to appease the higher ups at mass, but also to, uh, to kind of come back to a topic we've talked about previously on the show. So we have talked about the fact that uh, glycogen is not just a single thing that is stored uniformly in muscle. There are localized glycogen compartments that are stored in distinct areas within the muscle. So we've got intramyofibrillar glycogen, which is located within the myofibrils. We've got intermyofibrillar glycogen, which is located between the myofibrils. And we've also got subsarcolemmal glycogen, which is located just beneath the sarcolemma. And the reason this is important is because there have been some studies 
uh, largely mechanistic in nature, indicating that the depletion of those different subcompartments is not uniform. It doesn't always happen at the same time. And so certain compartments might deplete more quickly than others. And probably more relevant to listeners is that not all of those compartments have the same physiological effects when it comes to sustaining muscle force. So the intramyofibrillar glycogen seems to be particularly important when it comes to sustaining muscle force because those are very closely um, located uh, directly near the sarcoplasmic reticula. And they facilitate the process of releasing calcium and then re-sequestering calcium so that it can then be released again and kind of perpetuating that cycle. That cycle requires ATP and the intramyofibrillar glycogen supports that cycle. And that cycle, that you know, consistent release and re-sequestering of calcium is absolutely critical for creating and sustaining muscle force. Now, uh, enter a new study. The, the article I wrote in Mass is called Modest Glycogen Depletion May Impact Lifting Performance More Than You Think. And the study that I reviewed is called Subcellular Localization and Fiber Type Dependent Utilization of Muscle Glycogen During Heavy Resistance Exercise in Elite Power and Olympic Weightlifters. Uh, and that was by Hawken and colleagues uh, in the year 2020. Now, the reason I wanted to review this article is because I think it's very cool and very awesome, and it's extremely relevant to me and the people I coach, and I would assume most of the people listening to this podcast. Now, in the past, uh, the role of carbohydrate for lifters has been debated, but the debate has been pretty short. Um, so it's very common to see notable figures in the evidence-based fitness community and in the sports nutrition world, people that do sport nutrition research for a living. It's very common to see these people kind of undermine the importance of dietary carbohydrate for lifters. And it's largely based on the fact that prior studies have shown that a single bout of resistance exercise might only deplete muscle glycogen levels by 24 to 40%. And that's looking at whole muscle glycogen. So the way that's determined is you put people through a workout. Let's say they're doing a leg workout. Then you take a little chunk of their vastus lateralis. You put it in the blender, grind it all up. You, you get this kind of homogenized clump of tissue. You look at how much glycogen's in it. So all those different compartments are all kind of blended together. And you can't really discriminate which types of uh, compartments have been depleted. It's just total muscle glycogen. Um, now, the, the implication here or the implied justification is that, you know, these exercise bouts are only depleting whole muscle glycogen by 24 to 40%. And we're going to kind of pretend or assume that glycogen works like a gas tank and that you're like when, when you're driving your car and you've got a quarter tank of gas or three quarter tanks or three quarters of a tank of gas, car's still going. It's functioning just fine. It's not until you start really running out that you're in trouble. And people have been viewing glycogen the same way. If you've only depleted it 24 to 40%, you could probably go in, do round two. Maybe you could get through round three before you have to worry about getting down to 10%, 5%, 0% glycogen left. Um, now, as you could probably assume from the title of my article, that's really not how glycogen works. But this new study, what they wanted to do was evaluate glycogen depletion looking at those distinct compartments of glycogen 
in type one fibers and in type two muscle fibers. Can, can I jump in for one second? Sure. So uh, if you're if you're someone who likes reasoning by analogy, um, which I, I think that describes a lot of people. Um, so uh, if, if you're like, okay, you know, maybe the the gas tank analogy doesn't work, but like, wh- what's another way that I could potentially think of this? Um, someone brought this up, I think on Facebook, I believe, uh, maybe in the mass group, if memory serves. Um, but, uh, another way you could look at this, like as an analogy, uh, is like an air tank. So if you're dealing with, with some form of compressed air, uh, the, the pounds per square inch within the container where the air is stored, uh, decreases as air is depleted. So, you know, if, if you're dealing with a compressed air canister at 20% capacity, it is not putting out air at the same force as it did when it was at a hundred percent capacity. Um, so th- that's again, not like a perfect analogy because, you know, there's not like intramyofibrillar air in a compressed air canister. <laughs> um, but that, that might be, uh, a way to think about the effects of glycogen on exercise performance conceptually that might fit with how it actually works uh, a little bit closer than the gas tank analogy. Yeah. Well, and the reason I present the gas tank is to describe how most people are erroneously conceptualizing. No, I I, I agree. I'm just saying like some, a lot of people do like analogical conceptions. Okay. And I'm just saying like a compressed air canister may be a somewhat closer analogy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 So, um, this study, they were looking at, you know, this more kind of localized view of glycogen depletion. And what they wanted to do was use a pretty ecologically valid resistance training exercise. So what they had was, you know, they had a little warm up. They did four sets of five on the back squat, four sets of five on the deficit deadlift. And then they did some rear foot elevated split squats for four sets of 12. So, um, Pretty solid workout. I, I think pretty similar to what a lot of people do in their training. And again, they did use uh, some well-trained lifters for this study. And the design was straightforward. Uh, come into the lab, do the workout. We're going to see how glycogen was impacted from before the workout to after the workout. Now, when you look at total muscle glycogen, it only decreased by about 38%. And, and that's actually quite in line with previous studies. Like I said, usually 24 to 40% of whole muscle glycogen depletion. However, here's where it gets interesting. Uh, When they looked at type two fibers, the depletion was a little bit more extensive than it was in type one fibers. And then when they looked even closer, within type two fibers, the intramyofibrillar stores dropped by about 54%. And almost half of those fibers had very substantial depletion of the intramyofibrillar glycogen. So what they were finding is it wasn't that all subcompartments of all fibers were depleting at the same rate. They found that specifically the intramyofibrillar glycogen in many of those type two fibers was disproportionately kind of running out before other localized areas of glycogen. And that's pretty important. You know, it shows that glycogen depletion with, you know, standard resistance training in people who lift, uh, that glycogen depletion is occurring in a localized and non-uniform manner. And the particularly notable depletion that's observed is occurring in the intramyofibrillar area of the type 2 fibers. And 
that is a little bit concerning for performance because once those type two fibers uh, are unable to sufficiently fuel the the process of releasing calcium and resequestering it cyclically in the sarcoplasmic reticulum, that is highly likely to tie into fatigue in those fibers. And we might see that performance starts to deteriorate. Um, and I it's important to point out that in this study, they did not have a performance test at the end. You know, like they couldn't say, oh, and this depletion resulted in a performance decrement of X percent. But I think you could make a strong case that when we look at the other literature in this area, uh, we, we can have a pretty decent amount of faith that when we carry this forward, if, if we were to continue doing resistance training and, and see how this impacts uh, the ability to generate muscle force, I think you could very closely tie these observed effects with glycogen to muscular fatigue. Um, over a series of studies in the last 10 or 15 years, this research group has demonstrated in a variety of different research models that reduced intramyofibrillar glycogen levels are associated with impaired calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticula. And that is, uh, you know, w when we see that that starts to get impaired, that calcium release, it does appear to increase muscle fatigue and alter muscle contractility. So this lab group has done the work to really put that case together. Of course, it's always cleaner if you show it all in one study with well-trained uh, lifters. But um, I think what's really important about this study is we've had these isolated findings, and some of it is in toads, and some of it is in rodents, and some of it is in endurance athletes. Wait, it was in toads? Yeah, what do you think it was in? I thought it was in frogs. I think it was toads. I mean, it doesn't matter, but for whatever reason, toads are just funnier to me. <laughs> well, we'll have to look it up. I thought it was toads. It could be frogs. I'll admit I'm a dumbass. I don't really know the difference between toads and frogs. I, one of them lives in drier conditions, right? Uh, yeah. Frogs, by and large, spend all or most of their time in or around water, and toads mostly live out, out of the water. Okay. All right. Yeah. But yeah, so the research was kind of scattered among these different uh, models. And one of the big questions was, well, does this relate to resistance training? And I think this study is an important next step in showing, yeah, if you do a, if you're a trained lifter and you do a standard resistance training workout, you do preferentially deplete uh, those localized glycogen stores that we care the most about. And even if you're only hitting 30, 40% total muscle uh, glycogen depletion, you might be really stressing your, your glycogen supply uh, in the most critical areas of your type two muscle fibers. And once those are no longer able to really fully contribute to the force production process, you're likely to see fatigue occur and you're likely to see uh, your muscle contractile properties start to deteriorate. Uh, so that's a big deal, uh, in my opinion. I think it it necessarily requires that we have a more nuanced discussion about carbohydrate for lifting. Because for the longest time, people just said, screw it, you got 60% left, who cares? Don't worry about it. Now, it does not mean that all lifters need to inherently adopt a super high-carb diet. Th that would be an inappropriate extrapolation of these findings. Um, but what it means is we have to at least, when we're trying to figure out our carbohydrate needs as a lifter, we have to at least consider some key aspects of, you know, how much glycogen are we using and is it likely that we are replenishing that between sessions? So if you're eating 
at maintenance calories or above, and you've got a moderate carb diet at least, so let's say you've got at least 40% of your calories coming from carbs, and if you're resting at least 24 hours between high-intensity bouts with the same muscle group, you probably still don't have to worry too much about your glycogen levels. You're, you're probably going to be able to sufficiently replenish between bouts. Um, now, if you are in a big energy deficit or you're on a really low-carb diet or you perform multiple ses- uh, exercise bouts for the same muscle group, uh, with really glycogen-dependent uh, intensities, and, and those multiple bouts are occurring within a 24-hour period, then muscle glycogen replenishment could probably be an influential factor that you should be considering when it comes to your carbohydrate strategy. So um, again, I, I don't think the study necessarily means everyone has to go on a high-carb diet. I think there are still ways that you can make low-carb diets work very effectively for lifters, but you have to very carefully consider... Um, you know, what is your energy balance? Are you in a deficit or a surplus? What's your carb intake? How uh, glycolytic is the activity that you're doing? What's your training volume and training frequency? You got, you got to at least be mindful of making sure that if you are going to deplete uh, muscle glycogen, even if it's only going to be 30 or 40% total muscle glycogen depletion, you got to get that replenished before you're going to go do a glycolytic bout with that same muscle group. And if you're in a caloric deficit, it is harder. Um, one of the things that a lot of people overlook is if you're in a caloric deficit and you think, oh, but I had, you know, 150 grams of carbs yesterday, how much could I really need? Well, if you're in a deficit, a lot of those carbs are going to get used for energy needs. Uh, you know, they're not going to make it to, to the muscle to be scored, to, to be stored as glycogen. You're going to burn through them to meet your exercise energy needs and your resting energy needs. So you have to get uh, in a deficit a little bit more creative about how you're going to effectively replenish that glycogen. So the exciting thing is then going to be, what do we do from here? A lot of good conversations about if you are in a deficit and you do have a high training frequency and your repetition and intensity ranges are pretty glycolytic, what do you do? Is it intra-workout carb supplementation? Is it post-workout supplementation? Is it higher priority on the pre-workout meal? Uh, You could have some good arguments about that. And this line of research stop short of the practical application. We, we don't know exactly uh, when, when it comes to those specific scenarios, we really have to put our, uh, put a lot of thought into it and figure out what's the best way to do it. And you can have some good arguments, but at the very least there are arguments worth having. It, it is a dietary factor that deserves a lot more consideration than it's been given. Makes sense to me. All right. So Greg, what are you talking about here with your uh, research review? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm going to be talking about myonuclei a little bit, uh, talk about some rodent research. Uh, ooh, Eric, I learned a fun fact. What's that? Do you know where the name for muscle comes from? Hmm. I assume it's carn something, but, but where would that come from? In, no, like the actual word muscle. Oh, in English? Yeah. Uh, no, I was I was thinking like let's get back to Latin. No, where does it come from? So it does come from Latin. Okay, uh, it comes from it, it's derived from the Latin term for little mouse. Huh. Uh, and I I don't think um like linguistic anthropologists are positive how that came from, but the the current leading hypothesis is that like apparently when you flex your bicep, it looks enough like 
a mouse moving under the skin with like the tendon as the little tail coming off of it that they're just like oh yeah little mouse well that's like uh what what's the what's the origin again for is it hippopotamus uh Aren't, isn't that water horse i i forget hip yeah yeah because because hippo is i believe that's like greek for horse uh yeah it's it's uh the most obvious, I think, in German, uh, it's Nilpferd, which just means Nile horse. Yeah. So, yeah. like, yeah, you look at a bicep and you think, that's a mouse. Yeah, pretty and much. Then you look at a hippopotamus and you're like, dude, that, as far as I can tell, that's just a horse in water. Oh, do you know what the, the leading hypothesis for where um, myths of uh, cyclopses came from is? No. Elephants. So, if you look at an elephant skull... Um, just like the entire front of the skull just isn't there. Like it, it, it looks like, it looks like there's a single eye hole. So like if, if you look at a human skull, there's yeah. like two eye holes, uh, and like an elephant skull, there's just like one, one big hole in the middle of the skull. And it looks like, uh, it looks like there would just be one eye hole there. And apparently like, uh, during Homer's time, they came across, uh, elephant skulls they're like, oh, yeah, this is probably just some big scary thing with one eye, Cyclops. Dude, that would have been terrifying. to Like if you didn't know what an elephant looked like and you found that skull. Oh, yeah. I look mean, at, th- uh, that would have been. Look at this thing. Oh, wow. That is, I assume that has something. It's the trunk, right? The, the, tr- the trunk's doing Well, no, the trunk no, would that, be lower. That, that's the eyes. Like they're, uh, well, it, it's partially due to the trunk, I think. I think the uh, the nasal passages and like the eyes are kind of like all close enough that they just have one opening there and the, oh. they're in the middle of the skull. That I like elephants, but that's a strange system. Yeah. I, I would have done it a little bit differently. It's pretty spooky, man. I, I don't want a big hole, a big soft hole in the center of my face. I mean, you know, one thing to consider is like they're tall enough that nothing is gonna really get up there and threaten that unless like there was a particularly angry giraffe. That's true. So I mean like So you just have to be nice to the giraffes and you're you're good. I guess so. Yeah. Um anyway, yeah, let's uh let's talk about myonuclei. So uh shout out to friend of the pod, actual friend of the pod, not fake friend Eric Helms. Uh friend of the pod, Alex Coliari Turner. Um he sent some more cool myonuclei research my way. Um, this shit's really dense. Uh, most of the time when I talk about a study on the podcast, I am like 95% plus confident that I'm understanding everything going on. Uh, I'm still above 50% confidence here, but now it's closer to like 80, 90%. Uh, this is somewhere, this is somewhat outside my wheelhouse and it's very technical stuff. Um, but it's cool enough that I figure it's at least worth taking a swipe at it. Uh, and if I fuck it up bad enough, we can just get Alex back on and he can set us straight. Good stuff. Uh, so with that massive caveat out of the way, uh, let's get into it. So one of the papers he sent me, uh, was titled Myonuclear Content Regulates Cell Size with Similar Scaling Properties in Mice and Humans by Hansen and colleagues. Uh, and so uh, w- one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is in a recent episode, we discussed myonuclei a bit, uh, in, pr- in particular how they may or may not relate to muscle memory. So um, 
for a bit there, uh, it was thought that myonuclei may be the driver of the muscle memory phenomenon. Um, and ba- basically more research is suggesting like, yeah, maybe they play a, a role to some degree, but probably aren't like the singular driver and, and may not even play the dominant role. Um, but I don't want to make it sound like myonuclei are either unimportant or not super, super interesting, because I think they are still super, super interesting. Uh, And so a recent study suggests that, you know, maybe they aren't the driver of muscle memory, but they might be the driver or at least like one of the major things uh, placing constraints on hypertrophy of muscle fiber size. And so that's why I wanted to talk about this. Like I've mentioned this on the podcast before. One of the questions that fascinates me is like, why, why the fuck do we stop growing? Because uh, if you think about, if you think about muscle growth, just in terms of like muscle protein synthesis, um, I don't think we've, <laughs> I don't think we've really come across a population yet where uh, you can't put them through some resistance training and give them some protein and notice uh, an elevation in muscle protein synthesis. And in trained lifters, you don't see, like, an enormous increase in muscle protein breakdown either. So, like, on the surface, you, you just look at protein stuff and you're just like, why, why do we plateau? Like, why don't people just kind of grow indefinitely? Um, and so, like, that that's something that I think about a lot because, like, that's obviously an important question that we don't, that most research isn't designed to investigate. Uh, so when Alex sent me this study, I was very, very... Uh, interested in it. So um, basically what they were doing in this study is they were looking at the relationships between myonuclear number per fiber, uh, fiber volume, and fiber surface area, uh, both in mice and humans. And what and, and basically they wanted to see like what what do myonuclei scale with? Like are they do they scale linearly with fiber volume? Do they scale linearly with surface area? And what they found is that uh, myonuclear content scales linearly with muscle fiber surface area. Uh, and just just based on how volume equations work, uh, when surface area increases, volume increases faster. So you can you can see this uh, um, like pretty easily if you talk about like the surface area of like a cube or something like if you double the the sides of a cube um the surface area will the the volume will increase at a cubic rate and the surface area will increase at a square rate um so so volume increases faster than surface area does uh and so essentially what you see is that in larger fibers the relationship between surface area and myonuclear number is the same as smaller fibers, but larger fibers have fewer myonuclei per unit of fiber volume than smaller fibers do. Um, and the the basic idea posited by the researchers here is that that might place a constraint on how large a muscle fiber could then become. Uh, stated conversely, um, we, we've talked about before the idea of a myonuclear domain limit. Basically, there is a maximum volume of cytoplasm that each myonucleus can, like, quote-unquote, oversee. Uh, and so if the amount of volume per myonuclei 
inherently increases as fibers get larger because the myonuclei are scaling with surface area. Uh, just, just by virtue of that relationship existing and hypertrophy occurring as fibers get larger, you will run into your myonuclear domain limit. And then in order to keep growing, you would basically have to break the relationship between myonuclear number uh, and fiber surface area. Like you, you would need to have more myonuclei per unit of surface area for volume to continue increasing. Uh, and since this seems to be a, a fairly fixed relationship in at least two different species across a pretty wide array of fiber sizes, um, who knows, maybe that isn't possible and maybe this is something that, that does place that upward constraint on how large fibers can be and therefore the limits of hypertrophy. Um, so uh, in, in previous discussions of uh, myonuclear domain limit, the focus was more on like quote unquote normal hypertrophy. So like could fibers uh, or, or like how fibers grow um, and like whether or not people needed to accrue more myonuclei in, in order for fibers to keep growing. Uh, basically, this takes things a step further and posits that myonuclear domains inherently grow as fibers grow uh, and that fibers might reach a point where they simply can't grow without exceeding the myonuclear domain limit because myonuclear content is constrained by surface area. Um, it's worth noting that uh, myonuclear domain limits have been exceeded in the past in some experimental models. So uh, a, a common example people might bring up is myostatin mutants. So like mice that are genetically engineered to not produce myostatin, they get super, super big uh, and they have larger myonuclear domains. Um, so like uh, fiber volume increases disproportionate to um, to myonuclear number. Um, but another thing we see in those mice is that they, their muscles tend to be somewhat dysfunctional. So they're less strong per unit of size than mice who aren't myostatin knockout mice. So like, you know, maybe we can exceed so-called myonuclear domain limits, but there might be some functional limitations that come that come along with that. And, you know, it might only be possible in like fucked up breeds of mice that are genetically engineered to have a specific like myostatin mutation. Uh, it, it doesn't just have to be genetic engineering. Um, I guess it's worth noting. So like some whippets called bully whippets, like a, a breed of dog are also myostatin mutants uh, and Belgian blue bulls. Uh, well, just Belgian blue cattle are like have been bred to be myostatin mutants. Uh, I met some of those in Belgium a couple years ago. Yeah. How the, cool was that to see them in person? You know, so it was cool on a couple levels. One, they were very chill. Uh, like I saw them, uh, uh, Thomas, the guy that we were traveling Belgium with. Uh, I was like, Thomas, are those Belgian blues? And he's like, oh yeah, like that is the dominant breed of cattle here. Like, uh, I thought that it was just like kind of a thing that was maybe like kind of a novelty, but I think that's like the the majority of Belgian beef production, uh, which surprised me. Um, and actually, they're they're a very good animal for that because uh, one, their meat is very lean, so they have less fat on them than other like cattle breeds because they're shredded. They're not just big. Like, yeah, they're fucking shredded. They, they, yeah, they're yeah they're huge and shredded. Yeah, and their their feed efficiency is pretty high uh, because they're myostatin mutants like. For every 
unit of feed you feed them, they put on a, a pretty large proportion of, of muscle in response to that. Uh, so anyway, like it, it makes sense, but like it just kind of surprised me. I thought that they they were just kind of a novelty animal. <laughs> um, so anyway, I was like, oh shit, stop the car. I want to I wanna go say hey to the cows. Uh, and they just like came up to the fence. They were super gentle. Like they let me pet them. I fed them some grass. Um, and they were like, they are so freaky in person. Yeah. Uh, they're so jacked and also so gentle. Um, but the other thing that surprised me is like, I had only seen pictures of them on the internet and like, I saw how muscular they were. And in my head, I was mapping that onto like an Angus steer. Cause like th- there were cattle farms where I grew up and I'm used to seeing Angus cattle. Cause like that's, what's raised for beef in the U S for the most part. Yeah. Um, and like Angus cattle are fucking huge. They're enormous. Like their stature. Yeah. 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 Like they're, they're tall and they're, they're super wide. Yeah. Uh, but like very tall, just massive creatures. Uh, and I just assumed that Belgian blues would be like their, the skeletons would be comparable to Angus cattle. They were actually like kind of small. Um, like they were short, they were very stocky, very muscular. Um, but I was like kind of surprised at how little they are. And I think that's just because American cattle are so big. Yeah. But anyway, that was a very cool experience. Uh, anyway, myonuclear mutant or, uh, um, myostatin mutants have some weird stuff with, with myonuclei that probably doesn't apply to, uh, Creatures that don't have myostatin deficiencies. Uh, But speaking of other genetically engineered critters, uh, there was another study that Alex sent me uh, by Kramer and colleagues titled Nuclear Numbers in Syncytial Muscle Fibers Promote Size But Limit the Development of Larger Myonuclear Domains. Uh, And so essentially what they did in this study is they genetically engineered some mice to mess with a protein that affects myonuclear fusion. So basically, like, uh, when when satellite cells differentiated, they would have a harder time fusing to the uh, the muscle fibers to limit myonuclear number in these mutant mice. And they basically wanted to see what effect that would have. Um, So to quote from the abstract, I, I think this lays it out pretty well. Uh, Here we directly explore the assumed causal relationship between multinucleation and establishment of normal size through titration of myonuclear numbers during mouse neonatal development. Three independent mouse models where myonuclear numbers were reduced by 75, 55, or 25% led to the discovery that myonuclei possess a reserve capacity to support larger functional cytoplasmic volumes in developing myofibers. Surprisingly, the results revealed an inverse relationship between nuclei numbers and reserve capacity. We propose that as myonuclear numbers increase, the range of transcriptional return on a per-nuclear basis in myofibers diminishes, which accounts for both the absolute reliance developing myofibers have on nuclear accrual to establish size and the limits of adaptability in adult skeletal muscle. So basically, um, they found that fibers with the reduced myonuclear content were smaller than fibers that were where myonuclei could fuse normally. Uh, but they found that the fibers with fewer myonuclei could support larger myonuclear domains. So, you know, if, if there was a 55% reduction in, um, in myonuclei, that wouldn't lead to a 55% reduction in fiber size. It might only be like a 20% reduction or something like that. Uh, 
But conversely, as fibers got larger, the ability of each fiber to support larger myonuclear domains decreased. Uh, so basically, there, there seems to be an inverse relationship between fiber size and the myonuclear domains that can be supported, um, like per nucleus. And so like this raises a question of like, why is that? The first thing that came to mind for me is it might just be a diffusion problem. So essentially, if you have a, a muscle fiber that is smaller in cross-sectional area, um, th like the, the myonuclei are largely located near the surface of the muscle fiber. And so if you have uh, a muscle fiber of smaller cross-sectional area or, or like smaller diameter, the middle of that muscle fiber is closer to each myonucleus. Um, like there's just a shorter diffusion distance, uh, and like stuff in cells still has to move. <laughs> um, like that's something that I think people don't think about just like the kinetics of all of those molecules. And so like, you know, if you're a nucleus and you want to signal and say like, Hey, make some more myosin, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna get red and you're gonna send some messenger RNA out to a ribosome. Um, and it's gonna produce that myosin and it's gonna link up with like, other contractile proteins and like, you know, th that's a whole thing. Um, but like the mRNA has to diffuse through the cell to a ribosome and then like the protein has to go to where it needs to be for like the structural function uh, within the cell. And so like one of the things that came to mind is just like as volumes of fibers get larger, uh, the distance from like a myonucleus to the furthest point that it might be like quote unquote overseen just naturally gets larger. Um, so that, that might be some sort of constraint there. We see a similar thing with oxygen actually. Um, so one of the reasons that it is inefficient for endurance athletes to be too muscular is if their muscle fibers get larger, the diffusion distance for oxygen increases. And so like their fibers just function a bit less efficiently for oxidative metabolism. Um, so like a kind of, you know, maybe a similar thing is going on with myonuclei. Um, the authors posit that uh, nuclear density may basically regulate itself. So maybe the nuclei themselves are communicating in some way uh, we don't understand um, to basically say like, hey, this is my turf here on the surface of the fiber you can't get too close to me. Um, so something like that could be going on. Or it could be that the nuclei themselves, um, or, or it could be that basically um, myonuclear domain size is regulated by transcription factors. So basically there might be a, a finite amount of transcription factors in the cell. Uh, and if nuclei got, and as nuclei get closer and closer, the transcriptional capacity per nucleus decreases because there, there is like a finite amount of transcription factors that the nuclei are like kind of competing for, I guess. Um, so basically like greater nuclear density on the surface of the fiber would lower the transcriptional capacity per nucleus. Um, but regardless, this dovetails pretty well with the other study um, further suggesting that myonuclei could limit fiber size. Um, so basically, you know, if both the, both the myonuclear number scaling with the surface area of the fiber, that's going to make fibers eventually hit their myonuclear domain limit because volume is increasing disproportionately to surface area. Uh, and furthermore, 
as the density of these myonuclei increases, the transcriptional capacity per nuclei decreases. Um, so basically, like, you could ask yourself, like, well, okay, like, maybe we could find a way to exceed the myonuclear domain limit. But this is essentially implying that the myonuclear domain limit itself inherently gets smaller and smaller as myonuclear density gets higher and higher. Um, so that, that just further reinforces that this mechanism could be what is constraining fiber size and therefore hypertrophy. Um, one just like kind of interesting thing I noted uh, is um, cross-sectionally within like a population of muscle fibers, contractile force also scales with uh, fiber diameter, which which would scale with uh, with surface area um, rather than fiber cross-sectional area. Uh, ergo, um, contractile force scales linearly with myonuclear content, not fiber cross-sectional area. Uh, and like, I don't know what to do with that. Um, <laughs> that could just be like a weird little coincidence, but you know, that's just a thing, I guess, for you to stew on. Um, and it, it's a connection that I would like to see explored. But anyway, um, this stuff might seem kind of arcane, but it does lead us to some interesting questions and or implications. Uh, so the first implication is that the upper limit of hypertrophy may be constrained uh, to some degree by the number of muscle fibers you're born with. So there was a study by McDougall and colleagues, I believe from 1982, which uh, supports this to some degree. So in that study, they they compared um, bodybuilders and powerlifters against untrained controls, and then they had the untrained controls train for six months, and then they compared various things about the now six-month trained people against the powerlifters and bodybuilders. And basically, they found that at, after six months of training, the powerlifters and bodybuilders st still had way more muscle than the previously untrained folks, uh, but their... Um, like their fiber size was pretty comparable, <laughs> um, which seems to suggest that the bodybuilders and powerlifters just had way more muscle fibers than these folks who just got into training. Um, which then leads us to kind of a second question, and that is to what degree is, is hyperplasia contributing to ongoing muscle growth? Um, so a general observation I've had is that as people train and and seem to approach their like quote unquote genetic limit, um, some people do kind of seem to hit a hard limit, and some people seem to kind of shift to a more gradual phase of growth. Where like you know over decades they do keep gaining muscle, but it's just at a very very gradual rate. Um, and in an idea that's been floating around in the back of my mind is like, could that be due to different propensities towards hyperplasia? Like, you know, maybe there's inherent differences in how well people hypertrophy and there might be inherent differences in how efficiently hyperplasia occurs in humans as well. Um, it's worth noting, I guess we've talked about hyperplasia on the podcast before. I'm not going to relitigate that whole thing. It's controversial whether hyperplasia occurs in humans at all. I am very strongly on team hyperplasia, um, mostly because it has been observed in really every animal model where we've tried to observe it, um, even using like 
non-extreme interventions. And so, like, it would be kind of surprising if it occurred in, like, basically every animal except for humans. Uh, so I'm... I was going to say, isn't there some interesting stuff about dominant versus non-dominant limbs in humans as well? Yeah, so um, your non-dominant side, tibialis anterior, probably gets more just general work on a day-to-day basis because that's like what what your stance leg would be when you're doing stuff with your dominant leg. Um, and when when people... So there was a study where like people died and they cut out their tibialis anteriors and compared fiber numbers between the dominant and, and non-dominant side. Uh, and the non-dominant leg tip, tibialis anterior had about 11% more muscle fibers than the dominant side did. And so like that's theorized to be like just as a result, like hyperplasia resulting from day-to-day activities. One would assume that if hyperplasia were to occur, it would probably occur to a greater degree from resistance training than just like walking i guess um so yeah there's some indirect evidence in humans as well um so anyway we're we're nowhere close to knowing the intricacies of hyperplasia in human models um but this this whole line of research just makes me wonder about it more so if if myonuclear content and myonuclear domain limits are are basically placing a hard cap on how large each fiber can be. Theoretically, one would then assume that like folks could grow up to that limit and then if hyperplasia doesn't occur, like growth is done, capiche, it's over. Um so like because people do seem to keep growing over time, uh a lot of people even though very gradually my thinking is that that very gradual but continued rate of growth um, may be due to, to hyperplasia more so than hypertrophy. Um, but, but obviously we would need more research to tease that out. Um, a third implication of this, of this line of research is we could now work out the theoretical upper limit of muscle fiber cross-sectional area. Um, we have the information to do that now, uh, under the assumption that the myonuclear domain limits are actually hard limits. Like basically, you know, if we know surface areas, volumes, and myonuclear domain limits, you could then be able to compute the maximal per fiber cross-sectional area. Um, I could do that. I didn't because I was outlining this last night and uh, it is currently Christmas week and I had more important things to do. Uh, But if someone wants to work that out, all, all of the pieces are in play that we could now figure that out, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, and the fourth question slash kind of implication uh, that this brings up just makes me wonder about is like, what the fuck are steroids doing? <laughs> and uh, like exogenous anabolics. So are they... Um, like, are they allowing, maybe, for larger myonuclear domains by enhancing the transcriptional capacity of each myonucleus? That's a possibility. Uh, are they maybe allowing for a disproportionate increase in myonuclei, myonuclei per unit of fiber surface area? That's a possibility. Uh, some research by Katie, K-A-D-I, shows that... Uh, uh, exogenous testosterone does increase rates of myonuclear accretion. So like that's a possibility. Um, do they maybe promote hyperplasia? Uh, 
that is another possibility. Or uh, is it multiple of those options, all of the above? Who's to say? Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, if if we now have a, a mathematical relationship that describes how large fibers should be able to get. Uh, well, I mean, I guess another possibility is like maybe there is some sub-constraint and most people never reach that theoretical upper limit of fiber size. And maybe that's all steroids are doing. Like they're they're helping people reach that theoretical limit. Um, if, uh, if someone were to um, uh, take the information in these studies and work out what that theoretical limit of fiber size is, um, let me know. So the, the largest fibers I've seen reported in the literature, um, in humans are like, God, I'm, I don't know units. I think it's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 10 to 12,000, uh, square micrometers. So you could work that out if, you know, if the number is like 25,000 or something like that, it's like, oh, okay, now I know what steroids are doing. Uh, humans training drug-free just aren't approaching that theoretical limit in the first place. Uh, but anyway, I don't know. That's just another thing to ponder and consider. But overall, I think this is a very, very interesting and very cool line of research. Because, um, yeah, like up, up to this point, we... To my mind, we didn't have a super clear candidate for what might be placing upward constraints on fiber size and hypertrophy. Uh, and this seems to be uh, a really, really strong candidate uh, that I thought was super, super cool. Um, and since I've recently cast aspersions on the possibility that that myonuclei are like a driver of muscle memory, I uh, just wanted to bring up another phenomenon that they could be contributing to. Cause I, I do think myonuclei are, are fascinating. Uh, and that that's still an area of, of research that's very, very much worth watching. So I remember, I believe the year was 2018 and you and I were having a discussion and you said, you know what we ought to do, Eric, we ought to write an article about what ultimately constrains muscle growth. And we didn't, and I was a little nervous that, that you were going to say, okay, let's go ahead and do it now, because up until about 20 minutes ago, I don't know what the hell we would have written. Well, so I was thinking we could not like confidently say this is what it is, but basically throw out like, ah, here, here are some possibilities based on some things that are kicking around. Um so I, I was previously thinking myonuclei before. I wasn't thinking like, you know, th this discordance between um, surface areas and volumes. I was thinking more along the lines of like, you know, may maybe you just reach a point where you can't fuse more myonuclei. You hit your myonuclear domain limit. Like maybe that's what's constraining things. Um, another thing I had in mind uh, is is uh, my buddy Francis Hallway, his idea of like muscle to bone ratios potentially constraining things. Like we know that there is a pretty fair amount of crosstalk between muscle tissue and bone tissue um, and that they can like mutually regulate the metabolism within each other to some degree. Um, and so he, he basically has a database of athletes finding that like among the the most muscular athletes in his database, there's a there seems to be like a relatively hard ish limit 
on the like muscle to bone ratios observed in in the the athletes in a sample um so I, I thought that might be worth chatting about. And honestly, that's another thing I'd love to see more research on. Like crosstalk between muscle and bone, I think is super important. Uh, bone is an endocrine organ uh, to a degree that I think a lot of people don't appreciate. And I, I think it's like super slept on uh, for muscle metabolism. Um, you know, I, I'm not positing that it's like a panacea or anything, but it, it's an area where I would like to see more research, like with a resistance training focus. Um, another thing that I had in mind is like, it might be related to connective tissue to some degree. So like we, we know that connective tissue can thicken and get stronger in response to loading, but like that does basically like tendons do seem to be less ab like less adaptable on a relative basis than muscle. And so like, you know, potentially, um, you know, the, the force your muscle can create, uh, reaches like basically the amount of force that your tendons are comfortable transmitting, uh, and just through protective mechanisms, then like the, the contractile force that your muscles are producing kind of like plateaus and like maybe therefore you can't then disrupt homeostasis enough to get a, a post-exercise hypertrophic signaling response. Um, so th those were the three three ideas I had kicking around in my head that, again, not claiming to know for sure that any of those things were the things that limited hypertrophy, but just based on like indirect shit like that. Those are the types of things where it might be interesting to talk about and discuss mechanisms a little bit. And, you know, like uh, like people in a college dorm room, like instead yeah. of talking about like, oh, what's the meaning of life, man? And like no one knowing the answer, it's like, oh what constrains muscle growth, man. And just kind of like throwing some ideas out there. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's what I had in mind at the time. But uh, this, this is obviously another very strong candidate that now has more experimental evidence supporting it than any of those other three options I just threw out there. Yeah. So do you feel like you're closer to uh, opening up a document and beginning that, that article someday? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I don't want to do it. Uh, yeah, I, I, it seems like the the myonuclei stuff. There are three or four research groups out there that are doing a pretty fair amount of like very very cool shit in the area right now. Um, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm hoping some of that will pan out uh, to give us some clearer answers. Yeah, let them figure it out before we uh, start writing about it. Yeah, and I mean ultimately, like that. That basic rundown uh, that I just gave you, that would have been the article, but it would have been like eight to 10 times longer with a lot more citations. Yeah. Um, but like th those were the ideas. N now the audience knows those ideas. Yeah. I mean, in the time since we had that discussion, we decided to uh, try this whole audio format and, and that's made it a lot easier to get some ideas out there with without writing, you know, thousands upon thousands of words. Mm-hmm. So did we uh, did we settle on a topic to play us out? You know, I think I think the best thing to do because this is going to be our last episode of 2020. It is. Uh, is just to thank the audience. Yeah. So um, being very transparent for a moment uh, when everything started kicking off in February and March, we were we were legitimately scared about how this year might go. 
with gyms closing, uh, would people still be consuming lifting content, uh, content about a, ha- a a hobby that a lot of them would be un- unable to engage in, at least for, for a time, um, with people getting laid off and like salaries getting cut back. Like we are, any of our products you buy are the definition of like discretionary spending. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, you know, with, with that getting constrained, like we were afraid that the businesses were going to really, really take a pretty big hit. Um, and honestly, like this year has gone, I mean, obviously not like perfectly, uh, but it, it's, it's gone way better than we could have hoped for really. Um, and, and we owe that to you folks listening. Um, you know, we, uh, I mean, on, on a very literal basis, uh, without you, we would not have a business. We would wind up sleeping on the streets. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, we really, uh, appreciate everyone who's, who's listened to the podcast, who's, uh, you know, used our discount code at bulk supplements. That's, that's really kept the lights on. Um, and yeah, we, we, uh, we love you and we hope that everyone is having a great holiday season. Absolutely. We hope everyone has a great holiday. Um, I echo everything you just said. Um, stronger by science community out there came through in a big way this year. And aside from just keeping the business viable (laughs) and us under roofs, um, you know, the, the uh, fireside chat series, you know, the, one of the reasons that we wanted to have that was, boy, these are some scary, uncertain times. And uh, it'd be nice to just kind of hang out and chat with whoever's out there, you know. So we were hoping that it would be a helpful thing for everyone listening to just like not talk about COVID for 60 to 90 minutes and relax. But honestly, I, I found it really helpful to just talk to the world. And mm-hmm. just kind of chill and and kind of create a, a social thing out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even just that, just the audience being there and kind of following along with us throughout the year, it's been huge. It's meant a lot to to both of us. Yeah, and uh, you, you guys also um, raised a fair a fair bit of money for good causes this year as well. Um, so the the two mass sales that we held this year. Um, they so a, a portion of proceeds went to uh food banks for the first one and yeah. american it's not american society for suicide prevention what is it american, american foundation, foundation. Yeah. yeah um so between those two i think somewhere in the neighborhood of about 30,000 bucks were raised um so you know i mean that's that's not like on on the scale of like aid that governments can provide but like that that's that's a, a good chunk of change going towards um, going towards really positive things. Uh, and, and you guys were the ones who did that. Absolutely. So uh, thank you so much for your continued support. Um, this is the final episode of the calendar year 2020, but we're going to be back in 2021 better than ever. And I promise we're going to try even harder. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. 
We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.